Fighting for freedom every day. Broadcasting from the heartland of America. The next generation in conservative talk radio. This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Yes, indeed it is. What's up? Welcome into it. Hey, it's a Wednesday, man. Greatest day of the entire week. And boy, is the news cycle just going absolutely berserk. We are... Just trying to keep our head above water, covering things left and right. Welcome into the program. we got so much to talk about today, your face is going to melt off. So be prepared, man, because that's just what we do here on the show. That is the most metal thing I ever heard in my whole life. Darn right it is. Welcome into it. This is The Voice Reason. I am Andy Hoosier, broadcasting out of the heart of the nation here in Wichita, Kansas, on our flagship radio station. We are all over the country. Multiple radio stations and TV, live streaming, podcasting, however you watch or listen to the show. Welcome aboard your Millennial General reporting for duty like we do every single day. Apparently today was the big day, if you know what I mean. Andy, what do you mean? Well, it was the big day. I mean, today was the day we got to see whether Joe Biden was fit to still be president of the United States. Oh, yeah, we do that as we start off with our What's Trending. What's trending today? So, as of according to Newsmax, today was the day where Joe Biden headed off to go get his physical, his annual physical test from the doctor, the White House doctor. And apparently, we have not seen the report as of yet, but according to the Biden, uh, Joe Biden himself and Karine Jean-Pierre, they say the physical exam, quote, was no different from the healthy report that we had seen last year. They had to put that word in, that healthy report that we had seen from last year. Now, remember, he did not get a cognitive ability test. He only got a physical, which I don't know how he passed it, being physically fit to be able to scuffle his feet and trip up the stairs on Air Force One multiple times over the past year. But apparently he's physically fit. He is fit as a Greek god. But that's at least what the doctors are trying to tell us. We can see evidently obvious otherwise. But I'm wondering how much money just gets dumped into the bank account of the White House doctor here shortly after the test when saying that everything is all hunky-dory. Now, when asked about a cognitive test, Karine Jean-Pierre had her press briefing just recently in the last couple hours, and when asked about the cognitive test, she got a little defensive. I did see Dr. O'Connor, and he he stopped by my office earlier today uh, after the president completed his physical uh, this morning, as you all know. Uh, He was happy with how everything went, and as soon as he uh, uh, finishes completing the memo, uh, it will be a robust, comprehensive memo. We will certainly a share that with all of you, as we have done in the last two years. And uh, look, you saw the president return to work. He took some of your questions uh, not too long ago, and you saw he's going to continue to uh, to fight for the American people. And in this particular instance, he was talking about fighting fighting crime. So the president's going to continue that that process as it relates to. Okay, hold on. <laughs> Let's stop right there. So that was thirty-seven seconds of her responding to the uh, physical test that was done. And obviously he's physical and he came back and he was able to speak on, you know, crime issues and he's going to speak at something else again. So, you know, he's totally physically fit. Don't worry about any issue whatsoever. Now, regarding the cognitive test that he did not get, by the way, that she gets a little grumpy about that you one. You were asking me about a cognitive test. As it relates to that, look, um, you know, the president doesn't need a cognitive test. That is not my assessment. 
That is not my assessment. That is the assessment of the president's doctor. Uh, that is also the assessment of the neurologist, uh, who has also made that assessment as well. And you know, and you've heard us say this, and I'll reiterate this. The president's doctor has says. If you look at what this president, the president who is also the commander in chief, he passes mm. a cognitive test every day, oh. every day, oh. as he moves from one topic to another topic, try, understanding the granular level of these topics. You saw him talk about <laughs> uh, fighting crime today. Tomorrow he's going to go to the border. Next week he's going to give a State of the Union address. And so we have to keep that in mind. Uh, this is a very rigorous job, uh, and uh, the president has been able to do to this job every day for the past three years. And let's not forget, he is also leading a historic uh, presidency, which is also important wow. to note in everything that we've been able to do. He's been able to get done over the past three years. Wow, there it is. All right. Let's go into the Biden basement. I just want to recap that in there for you just a moment. The fact that he doesn't need a cognitive test because he gets tested every single day from just being on the job. Obviously, he can talk about multiple different issues because today he spoke about crime after his physical test when he got back and did a brief uh, deal. Now, he doesn't necessarily take questions, but he makes his statement and then he scuffles away. So let's write that one down. He, he talked about crime today. Tomorrow, apparently, he's going to talk about immigration. So he's got a day before he's you know, got to be able to mentally transition over to handle a conversation regarding immigration because he can't do that the same day. But he is totally capable about doing it within a day's time frame after that. Next week, we have the State of the State Address. So he's got a week to prepare for talking about a couple different issues all at the same time and being able to stand up, probably have enough steroids to keep him on his feet for the amount of time that it's going to take him to do a state of the state address that's probably going to last roughly 30 to 40 minutes. That would be my guess. We'll do an under over on that a little bit later. But let's just say he's he's got the state, the state address there. So he's got three topics to talk about over a two-week span. Just throwing that out. So totally capable <laughs> handling the presidency. And, oh, by the way, this... Uh, re- this uh, what'd she say? This is an award-winning presidency, or some kind of record presidency, or what? Has been able to do to the job every day for the past three years, and let's not forget, he is also leading a historic oh, a historic. Uh, presidency, which is also important <laughs> to note in everything that we've been able to do. He's a historic presidency. That's it, the historic presidency that it has been. I don't know what that historic presidency actually looks like because they haven't done anything historic or really anything at all. Because Congress actually just got voted for being the least productive of any Congress in modern American history, which would also mean that he also would be extremely ineffective for not doing anything unless except for the few executive orders here and there. So I'm still not sure what the historic presidency looks like, but there it is, my friends, ladies and gentlemen, we have now the physical test that came back from the Biden administration showing Joe Biden is physically fit and no need for a cognitive ability test because he gets challenged by talking about three separate issues within a week span. Totally, totally able to actually run for president. That, my friends, is the latest from the Biden basement. Let's go into the Biden basement. Man, there you have it. It seems like right now we are seeing some of the old guard disappear, and Joe Biden's trying to hang on as long as he possibly can. And I've said this before, the Democrat Party did not do well in setting themselves up for long-term success and long-term goals, which honestly surprises me because the Democrats have been really good for decades, really since FDR in the 1930s 
really when he recognized that if you have the administrative state continue on with your agenda, that even if the politician comes and goes, that you can continue to promote your agenda in the long term. FDR understood, as he said very openly, that you cannot have socialism take over the United States right away. It has to be an increments to where the public doesn't recognize it, which is what FDR did very effectively back in the day. And they set up that establishment and that process and that system to allow that to happen. But Democrats today have gotten impatient and really under the Barack Obama administration have not really done a good job at investing in the new Democrats rising to take over the mantle to hold that torch and be able to carry on the agenda thereafter because they wanted everything here and now. Bernie Sanders ran for president the last two times, really saying that he's going to finish and complete the FDR agenda, that it's done, we're here, we're getting impatient, let's get this thing done, let's get her going, let's get her done. I mean, that's that's the goal, that's what they want. And really under Barack Obama, they didn't invest in state parties, they didn't allow new fresh blood to come up, which is why you saw the rise of people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the Democrat side, because they rose on their own, and it's not part of that establishment uh, go with the flow status quo that the Democrats have wanted for oh so long. So you have Joe Biden, you got Chuck Schumer, you got Nancy Pelosi, you got Dick Durbin, you got these guys that are the old guard that are starting to fade. They realize they don't have replacements and they're hanging in as long as they possibly can. On the other front, Republicans have done that a little bit, but we are seeing some massive change. How many people have you seen over the past year under the Republican umbrella leave office or announce their retirement, they're not going to run for re-election. And ones that even haven't been there for very long, they're just rhino establishment, middle-of-the-road Republicans. With some big news on that today as well. What's trending today? As the latest comes from the Senate side of the aisle with the announcement that we've all been waiting for. I stand before you today, Mr. President, and my colleagues to say this will be my last term as Republican leader of the Senate. I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. However, I'll complete my job. My colleagues have given me until we select a new leader in November and they take the helm next January. Whoa, there it is. Mitch McConnell on the way out. We have to give the proper farewell here on The Voice of Reason. Now, okay, let's let's be honest here. Let's be a little bit fair, Andy. Andy, be nice. He's an 82-year-old guy who only freezes up during press conferences and mumbles his way through speeches. Not bad, as badly as Joe Biden, but still at the same time, he mumbles his way through, has zero fight left in him because he can barely stand there on his own. Anyways, so let's be nice and let's say something good about Mitch McConnell being the Senate Minority Leader. By the way, the longest Senate Minority Leader in U.S. history, the longest Republican in leadership in U.S. history, and the longest standing U.S. Senator from the state of Kentucky. So he's been there a while. He's been there really since the Reagan administration, and he said that in his speech, which he said he was very proud of doing, and a little bit shocked by that as well, and oh, how the time has flown right on by. Nonetheless, he's out. And he says he will stick in there until the end of the session, so the end of this year, until they find somebody else and has worked his way out. This is good news on multiple different levels. But this is good news. But Mitch McConnell, let's say something nice about him in the fact that he knew the system, the political system, and the way the government operates probably better than anyone else up there because of how long he's been there. 
He knows that system better than anyone else. Now, he's terrible at the fundraising. He thinks he's good at the fundraising, but he's terrible at the fundraising. He obviously didn't appropriate money properly in the last election to get potential Republicans uh, in seats that could have won because I think he always liked to play is the underdog is the minority leader, not the majority leader, because that way he can say he stands for things but allows stuff to slip through because, well, he just doesn't have the votes to make it happen. I honestly, truly, from the deep down, I believe that that was his most comfortable position as the minority leader. As the majority leader, uh, he tried to actually lead the Senate, and it didn't work out, and we ended up fighting against the Trump administration half the time during the four years under Trump. And he didn't like actually seeing productivity because he's been so tied into it for so long that he didn't like seeing things actually change. So he wanted to talk about change, get reelected, but wanted to be the minority leader to say, well, I'd love to do the change, but we can't make it happen. But I will give him credit in the fact that he knew the system better than anyone else. And he knew how to play that political game. But what does this mean for the party moving forward? This is big news. This is kind of bigly right now. And I think we're going to make it bigly. Yeah. This is Mitch McConnell, the last holdout in Republican leadership that fought against the Trump administration. The last one. The last one with any type of leadership position in the Republican Party. We have Ronald McDaniel that's on the way out next week after Super Tuesday. We've had Kevin McCarthy obviously out where he got so upset he just walked away completely at the end of the year and doesn't even care anymore. Now he's actually starting a pact to fight Matt Gates and the conservatives because he wants a vendetta against them for ousting him as the Speaker of the House. And now we have a conservative Mike Johnson. Mitch McConnell was the last holdout of the establishment deep state in Republican leadership at the federal level that was fighting Trump during the entire administration. And that means now stepping away and stepping away right now, but finishing out his term. What does that do? That rallies the base to show up even more so in the elections in November to make sure that not only do we get Donald Trump as the president, but we also make sure we could get a majority in the Senate of Republicans, which is possible, by the way, this year, very much so, and then elect a majority leader that's willing to work with Trump. Dude. This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Fighting for freedom every day. This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. I know the politics within my party at this particular moment in time. I have many faults. Misunderstanding politics is not one of them. That said, I believe more strongly than ever that America's global leadership is essential to preserving the shining city on a hill that Ronald Reagan discussed. As long as I'm drawing breath on this earth, I will defend American exceptionalism. So as I've been thinking about when I would deliver some news to the Senate, I always imagined a moment when I had total clarity and peace about the sunset of my work. A moment when I'm certain I have helped preserve the ideals I so strongly believe. That day arrived today. 
There it is. That's Mitch McConnell during his farewell speech on the Senate floor just a little bit ago. Do you realize the gift that he just gave the Republican Party? And I, you know, obviously make fun of him. He's a little bit more on the rhino side of things. He's fought against the Republicans. He essentially allowed Obamacare to take hold by allowing it to go through the committee, knowing that we didn't have the votes to stop it initially when it was voted on, but allowing it to actually skate through the health committees in the Senate. He's done a lot of things that were against Republican values, and we've not liked the way he's handled a lot of issues. But do you realize the gift that he just gave the Republican Party right now. He's announcing his retirement and stepping away from the Senate leadership position at a time when the election's heating up, where he's going to ride through this year, so we still have to deal with him this year and do this stuff. But when he said that he feels confident moving forward, he's not stepping away right now. He's not throwing the U.S. Senate and the government into turmoil with him stepping away right now. He's allowing this to now become an election issue. Which means now when we go to vote, not only are we voting for the presidency, but we have to vote like hell, if you know what I mean. We need to vote as best we can all over the place and have voter Republican turnout higher than we've ever seen to win over a couple more Senate seats, to win a majority in the Senate. Because we know now that with the establishment walking away, with the clearing of the clutter of the establishment, the rhino, the deep staters that it's been clearing for a while now, for the last year or two, on the Republican side in having conservatives, having Tea Partiers, having Freedom Caucusers, having Donald Trump MAGA-ish individuals, having these types taking over essentially the Republican Party at the federal level, that when we vote for leadership next at the end of this year for who's going to be the Senate majority or minority leader, whatever it could be, whether we win the majority or not, that when we vote for leadership in the Senate, we could essentially have someone that is going to be as conservative as Mike Johnson, someone who's going to be willing to work with Republicans and conservative Republicans to stand up against Chuck Schumer and the Democrats, someone who's willing to work with Donald Trump if he becomes president again. We're going to have somebody that is no longer going to fight against our agenda. This is I'm telling you, this is huge. This is bigly. And I think we're going to make it bigly. If you remember at the very beginning of the 2016 year when Donald Trump first took office in year number one, we had the majority in the House and the Senate. We had it. We had the House, we had the Senate, and we had the presidency. And you remember what happened? We wanted to do tax cuts. We wanted to shut down the border. We wanted to fix a lot of major issues. And the one obstacle that we had was not Democrats. It was us. It was our own party. It was the Jeff Flakes. It was the Mitch McConnells. It was the Lindsey Grahams. It was the John McCain's. It was the Lin, It was the Liz Cheney's. It was those that fought against Donald Trump so badly that they would do anything to stop the Trump agenda. And we had we had such a slim majority. We had a majority, but we had such a slim majority. We couldn't get anything done. We got one tax done, one tax plan done. We didn't get the two done that we wanted. We didn't get to solve immigration. We didn't get to repeal Obamacare. We didn't get three quarters of the agenda that we wanted done under the first round of the Trump administration. Now, with this stepping away from Mitch McConnell, and if we get the majorities again, this could be an entirely different ballgame. Why? Because every one of those that were ardent advocates against Trump, they're all gone. Every single one of them. We have a new Republican Party. Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. When Reason Meets Radio, this is The Voice of Reason 
with Andy Hoosier. Darn right it is. Reason, common sense, rationale. That's just what we do here on this program each and every day. We have Mitch McConnell on the way out. we got to give our proper farewell to him here on The Voice of Reason. <laughs> and I'm telling you, but I will say I will give him credit for the fact that he just gave Republicans a major victory or at least an opportunity for a major victory. If that doesn't rile people up to want to go out and vote and say, hey, not only do we need to vote for the presidency, but we need to vote for the House races or the Senate races. We have a huge opportunity to win over the majority in the Republicans again for the Senate. And if so, we'll have a new leader and every major leader. And every major huge political pundit that was in D.C. the first time Trump came around is gone. All of them that fought against Donald Trump back in the day. They're all gone. All of them. Now Mitch McConnell being the last one, essentially, which means between a Mike Johnson and another potential conservative speaker or at least a Senate majority leader, hopefully, at the end of this year when we win back the majority in the Senate, means we could work with Trump if he gets elected and we could actually have some things get done. We can actually move through with legislation and work in tandem and in use. And what an opportunity. If that happens again, I'm getting those tingles. I'm getting a little excited because that hasn't happened for Republicans to actually work together in a very long time. So don't take this away from me. All right, let's get into what's trending today. What do you say? What's trending today? There are a lot of issues, obviously, that we need to address, which if that's not issue enough for you to actually show up to the polls and make your voice heard later on this year, then I don't know what does, because we have Biden who's out campaigning on, you know, his investments in America, which obviously are working, right? I mean, we have homelessness that's absolutely insane right now. We have inflation that's up 20 percent across the nation over the past three years, 30 percent in food just alone by itself. Homelessness is on the way up. Crime's on the way up right now. Immigration problems that are happening all over. What do we do about all these issues, especially one with the housing? Now, again, the young generation, my generation, the millennials being 35 years old, are not buying homes, which is kind of mind boggling. They're not that they're buying homes at a lesser rate and slower rate than any other generation before them, really. But yet we still see mortgage rates that are climbing, largely because of the inflation and the interest rates. Thanks, Federal Reserve. We have that issue. We have the value of homes going up quite dramatically right now. We have housing shortages all over the nation. What the heck's going on with all this? Excited to have on the program to talk about this and so much more. He's an author with the Pacific Research Institute. Happy to have on here Mr. Steve Greenhut. Steve, how are you, my friend? Oh, good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Excited to have you on here. Uh, right now, it seems like the housing market is not something you really want to be involved in, unless, of course, you're selling a lot of properties as a realtor. But uh, right now, it still seems like it's a selling market because there's no houses on the market. Steve, why is that? Yeah, it seems like owners don't want to sell because um, most people are locked into a lower interest rate and interest rates are, are so high for a mortgage. And, um, uh, you know, we have here, you know, I'm in California, so there's, Ooh. there's just no, there just hasn't been building. So, uh, our legislative analyst office, which, uh, uh, you know, they work for the legislature, it's nonpartisan, uh, they do great research and they, they've been saying for years that we're the state's building 110,000 too few units a year. And you start doing that for a decade. And before you know it, uh, you just, you just have, uh, insufficient supply. And uh, that just drives up prices. I mean, the prices here in California, statewide, are over eight hundred thousand dollars. Which I mean, wow. that's crazy when you consider, you know, that it's a pretty big state, and a lot of the urban areas here aren't—they're not all LA and San Francisco. You know, they're not all coastal places. So yeah. it's it's crazy. But 
what we wrote about, uh, my colleague and I, Wayne Weingarten and I, we, we just wrote about the, uh, you know, how did we get here? And it's been a number of different, uh, you know, po- policy choices that the states made ever since mostly the 70s when Jerry Brown's first terms, uh, when this kind of slow growth environmental ethic kicked in. Previously, California had a really had a pro-growth, uh, you know, kind of uh, this attitude of endless growth. And uh, we're going to build the best universities, the best freeways, uh, blah, blah, blah. And then this kind of environmental ethic took place. And then we had a variety of uh, local and state policies that have just crushed uh, housing supply. Wow. It is devastating. I can only imagine trying to live in California. And I I heard that you have to have really that uh, six-figure income pretty regularly in order to even try to purchase a home because of that uh, average price being near $800,000. That's insane. Now, how much did COVID actually affect some of that with uh, people kind of freezing the real estate market and then obviously the price of goods that were uh, extremely hard to get because of some of the raw materials and how the price of those skyrocketed as well? Did that contribute to some of the prices we're seeing right now? Yeah, it's hard. You know, I remember when uh, COVID first hit, and I was thinking, oh, this is going to be the end of, uh, you know, this is going to kill the real estate market, which already seemed to be at this this height. And then, no, prices just soared ever since there. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it certainly has affected, uh, you know, the supply chain issues. I, I think this is nationwide. It certainly affected the, uh, you know, the cost of building materials and construction. I was actually remodeling a place in the middle of it, and, uh, you know, it was, it was a nightmare. But... Uh, uh, but but basically, I, you know, I don't I don't really I'm not not any sort of expert on why where the real estate market is now or where it's going. It's just that we've been writing about how it got here because most of the issues, you know, it's it's come over time. So we have a uh, yeah. I know you're in the Midwest, but some of the things, some of the mistakes we make here are, are repeated in other parts of the country. So we've passed a lot of these uh, local no growth rules. Uh, the courts have allowed. Uh, localities to just slam uh, developers with massive fees that go way beyond the cost of just the in- specific impacts of the housing development um, and on and on. We have a California Coastal Commission that's basically a, a no-growth, slow-growth commission that controls our whole 800-mile coast when going inland several miles. So they've They've restricted things. We've we've imposed these urban growth boundaries, following the model of Portland, Oregon, where you're basically not allowed to uh, build outside of the the uh, growth, the artificial boundary, which of course inflates all the the prices of everything within the boundaries. Yeah. And then, in, you know, some communities, uh, government uh, fees and and cost uh, amounts of forty percent of the price of a house. So, you know, <laughs> that's a lot of money to add to the cost of a house. In, in a lot of the country, you can buy a house for the government fees uh, that we have in California and, and on and on. And the state has tried to roll some of them back. And, uh, but, now, when you mean government fees, are you yeah. talking like property taxes? Like what kind of fees are we talking here? Oh, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm talking about, you know, just uh, just development fees. So mm. you want to build a new neighborhood and you have to build a fire station here and across town, and you have to buy, build not only the roads that go to your development, but you've got to build a new freeway segment. And wow. uh, it's just and the library. We need a new library, so if you want to get an approval, <laughs> and by the way, we're not going to let you build the 500 units that you proposed 
uh, we're gonna we're gonna only have you build 50 because we want to set aside all of this as open space because we need more parkland. And then, of course, we have something called the California Environmental Quality Act, which is known as CEQA. Uh, it was actually uh, passed by uh, Ronald Reagan, which is, was not one of his finest moments um, when he was governor here. But it, it allows anybody to sue uh, over a project. So the idea, uh, if you propose a building project, um, uh, you're supposed to produce under CEQA all these different environmental impact reports. And then anybody could sue basically for any reason. Uh, unions use it as to shake down developers to um, give them more lucrative contracts and that sort of thing. And that just delays projects, stops some projects. If you're in a in a neighborhood nearby and you don't want to see the new new homes, you, you can file a lawsuit, and it just adds costs and delays. So we've had all those sorts of things, one after another, and the result is uh, fewer and fewer houses getting built, and those that are built. Are, uh, are costlier. Yeah, it sounds like there's zero incentive to actually build a house right now because of the legal liability that you have, the regulations and the fines that you have to pay to actually make it. You're not going to make any money at the end of the day, or like you said, we're going to see a near million-dollar home that's going to be a little you know, hut or a couple uh, condos that uh, aren't going to go very far. We're talking with Steve Greenhut with the Pacific Research Institute, co-author of the new booklet you can find, Giving Housing Supplies a Boost. You had mentioned a little bit about the environmental stuff there. Uh, I'm sure that the environmental policy is just an add-on to that, especially when we see we're trying to get rid of natural gas, make everything go smart, make everything go completely electric. How much is that impacting the new houses potentially being built, but some of the old houses right now that need the renovation according to some of these policies? Yeah, I mean, we're, you know, we have a, a mandate for solar panels on houses, so that adds a lot of money. Uh, yeah, we've just banned the state, uh, uh, passed it a couple of years ago, but there's a ban now on elect- on uh, gas-powered lawn equipment. Uh, so we keep adding things that uh, we, I shouldn't say we, our state government keeps adding things that make homeowners, uh, you know, have to pay more. Wow. The state is, is struggling with its electricity grid, right? Just as we're phasing out, uh, internal combustion engine vehicles. Um, our electricity grid is not keeping up. So there, there was a I don't know it was last year where where uh, the same agency that's pushing for the end of uh, 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 gasoline automobiles encouraged everyone not to charge their EVs because they didn't have enough electricity on the grid. So I've uh, lived through a couple rolling blackouts here. So yeah, we're just not the state is not building its infrastructure. Uh, it's spending so much money on these uh, kind of global warming, climate change-oriented policies, uh, adding costs onto businesses, uh, adding costs onto developers, and we also have a you know a tangential issue. It's partly a housing issue. It's not entirely a housing issue, but the homelessness problem, right? So because it's not entirely a uh, housing issue in that the vast majority of the homeless uh, have yeah. addiction and mental health issues. Well, I tell you what, but Steve, in a state like ours where there's shortages of housing, it's those are on the margins. That's on it as well. Housing, so. I tell you what, hang on, yeah, yeah hold that thought. I, we got to take a hard break here. I want to continue that part and get to that when we come back around the corner because I have to think another big aspect to this issue as well. Lots more coming up. Stay right here. This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier.
fighting for freedom every day. The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Yes, indeed it is. Welcome back into it. Got a couple minutes left here of the program. Wrapping up for the middle of the week. We're just carpe dienisms all over the place. That's how we roll each and every day. Welcome back into it. We're hanging out with Steve Greenhut. He is the he is an author with his latest uh, new booklet, Giving Housing Supplies a Boost. You can find it with the Pacific Research Institute. Always love having these guys on the program talking about issues with the housing shortage in California. Really, we're seeing a housing shortage across the nation. A lot of it to do with really the same issue, high mortgage rates and with inflation and then with the housing shortage and raw materials and then regulation from the government. And the list goes on and on and on that's causing issues. And how did we get to this point is a fascinating statement. Uh, you, we were going into right before the break, the homelessness population in California, which, like you said, is not just because of the high prices, although I think that is a large contributor, but also with the mental health issues and drug addiction issues and everything else that you have to deal with, unfortunately, in California. Uh, but again, looking at how we got to this point in the first place, it's wild to think that the government is so heavily involved in this process with real estate that they've allowed it to get to this point. And then I wonder if they look at it and be like, huh, we should probably pull back a little bit here to allow things to actually flow naturally. Do you think that would happen, Steve? Well, there's actually been recognition um, among uh, certain progressives even, and they run the state here, uh, that they need to go back the other way. So there have been a variety of uh, laws that have passed, reforms that make it easier to build. Um, we got rid of single-family-only zoning, so you have a, a by-right to build a, a duplex in a neighborhood that made it easier to build uh, multifamily. The only problem with the, the rules, and I support most of, most of these uh, uh, reforms, the only problem is that they only apply in the urban footprint. So, in other words, the people passing them want us all to live in, in condos and apartments and uh, attached housing. And most people still want to have a yard and uh, most people still live in the suburbs here. So they haven't applied these kind of um, uh, streamlined uh, permitting process uh, rules to traditional suburban and single family housing. And, uh, you know, we need to open up all the housing markets, not just the selected ones that the uh, legislators would like, you know, so, uh, so we've done some a few things. There's been some progress. Some of this YIMBY, they call it, yes, in my backyard movement, has had a lot of success, and a lot of a lot of their ideas are good. They just don't go far enough, and they're they're too targeted to things the people who promote them like. I'm just I'm a free market guy, so let's just make it easier for the market to build whatever it is people want to buy. Yeah, you would think that would be the common sense kind of thing. Uh, let's look at it generationally for a moment here. Again, I'm a millennial, and apparently millennials don't want to buy homes. They're looking for apartments. They're looking for things to be taken care of if they're finally moving out of their parents' basements and trying to start their life, although they still don't want to start a family. Is that changing, do you think, the dynamic of what real estate's going to look like going from the large home to uh, here in Kansas, we saw the push for micro homes, the tiny little things, or for the apartment living in lifestyle, because millennials and maybe the generation after that don't want the big five, you know, five bedroom house. Well, you know, being like just a boomer, I'm not sure exactly uh, what millennials want, uh, but I'm guessing that if housing became more affordable, um, that a lot of people who say they don't want houses might start <laughs> wanting them, right? I mean, it's just you kind of adjust your desires to, to what's, what's uh, doable. I mean, I, I say that I don't want a uh, super fancy sports car, but, you know, maybe if I could afford one, maybe I, I'd get interested. I'm, I'm not trying to make light of, of what people want. It's just I think if yeah. we were able to get 
the price of things down to a more reasonable level uh, where it's just absurd. You know, it is true that people in my generation are the ones who have uh, been passing all these no-growth laws. And now, you know, I've got kids who would like to buy homes. And, uh, you know, that it's just out of the question, even though, you know, they have good jobs and, and uh, have saved money to buy homes. And it's just too absurd. It, you know, if a house is $800,000, I mean, just, you know, do the math on, on the kind of uh, mortgage somebody would need, even if you had a hefty down payment. And that's just not fair. And I think what we, what we need to do is to support a more building, reducing these regulations. And then on the homelessness issue, our state's been throwing money at it. And, and you're right that it is, you know, it is the, the housing market certainly vastly exacerbates that problem. Yeah. Uh, but we're spending money on a, something called Housing First, where the state tries to build permanent housing for every homeless person. <laughs> well, the way our bureaucracy runs, I mean, it, it takes forever to build these things. And, and some of them, they're $800 million a unit. There's not enough money in the world to do that. Yeah, I mean, the, government's the just... city of San Francisco has been, uh, they started in 2016 just trying to build a toilet in No Valley, one neighborhood. Yeah, and it's not going to work very well. succeeded yet. The yes. $1.7 million toilet. So yeah, a Steve city worked. that can't even build a toilet... Yeah, in they, a reasonable amount of time. No, that's a government's uh, inefficiency for you. Yeah. Steve, we're out of time, my friend. Here, I hate to cut you off, but we're out of it. I appreciate it. we got to get you back on again real soon. This is The Voice of Reason. We'll see you on the radio.